Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The obvious riddles and difficulties in Exodus 3, 13 through 15 and Exodus 6, 2 through 8 have attracted an overwhelming amount of attention and comment. These texts make important theological statements about the divine name and the contours of the divine character. In his book, Making Sense of the Divine Name, Austin Searles attempts to move beyond atomistic readings of individual texts and etymological studies of the divine name toward a holistic reading of the book of Exodus. Join us as we speak with Austin Searles about the progressive revelation of the divine name in the book of Exodus. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Dr. Austin Searles is Assistant Professor of Old Testament Studies at Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary. Austin, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Thank you. Uh, Greetings. So tell us about yourself and your journey to writing about the divine name. You bet. Um, Welcome to anyone who is listening. Uh, Thank you for your attention. My name is Austin Searles. I was born in 1985, so you can do the math. My upbringing in church was mildly Baptist dispensational, and my education, sort of post-high school, ranges from the Master's College, now the Master's University, to Wheaton College. But now I'm teaching in Amman, Jordan at Jets Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary for the last six years. Um, Professor of Old Testament, I think, uh, some title like that. And I'm loving it, just loving it. Um, Writing about the divine name. I don't know about anyone else out there, but when I was first told years ago that, well, there's this important word in the Bible. Hebrew Bible that we see written a certain way, but we pronounce it way differently, Adonai or Hashem or something, I was already intrigued. And for years, I thought about it and um, wanted to write about it. And when I got to the doctoral level, my um, gracious and very intelligent supervisor, Daniel Block, um, was excited too. And I started continuing to study it. I remember walking through Wheaton and uh, parsing the name in my head continuously. What could it be? How does it fit? How does it work? But as you'll see, that's sort of not how I now approach the divine name. But we all we all admit the name has a mystery to it. And it's been a, a real privilege to be able to study this name in the book of Exodus. Austin, what are some of the deficiencies with past studies on interpreting the divine name that you endeavored to overcome? Um, Well, most would know who've studied it. The deficiency is not the lack of articles and books and whatever on the topic. Um, No, what I've I've sort of been um, dismayed by or something that seems deficient is that nearly every article on Exodus 3, at least the older ones, spends most of its time engaging in an atomistic 
grammatical approach to the divine name. What I mean, or what this amounts to is most people are trying to look strictly at Exodus 3.14 and Exodus 3.15, looking at Eheye and the Tetragrammaton and trying to parse it exactly. Is it call? Is it Hif'il? Is it um, third person? Um, what could it mean? Why is there even like, why is the Vav there? We would expect not a Vav. It's archaic. Okay, so it's an archaic root. Um, and then from that admittedly conjectural parsing, people then take whatever verbal form they've discovered behind this name. And that verbal form is the essence of God. It is either he is, or he causes to be, or he is with. Um, and I really don't think that's the best way to understand the revelation of the divine name, especially just in the book of Exodus. It It's atomistic and it's grammatical and seems to reflect a lot of wrong assumptions about what the Bible is communicating about this name. Would you explain for us your approach to the divine name in Exodus? Yes, and I will try not to be too long-winded about this. Um, instead of an atomistic exegesis, um, I try to just ask my, what, what can help us, even within the Bible, what can help us understand Exodus 3, 13 through 15? And really, there is a sort of biblical form, if I can use that word, a literary feature that I call explicit naming word plays. And I devote my second chapter to a pretty thorough study of what it is and what they do. And it, it's it's the stories we've seen, even in translation, where um, she called him Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the Lord or with the help of the Lord. Or um, I call him Joseph, saying, may God add to me another son. It makes no sense in English. But in Hebrew, the original Hebrew, there's always a word play, thus explicit naming word plays. Um, Yosef, Yosef, um, Kain, Kaniti, there's a word play. And that's, I'm pretty darn sure what's happening in Exodus 3, where you have Eheye and then the Tetragrammaton. However it's pronounced, it sounds like Eheye. So instead of just focusing on those two verses and starting to philosophize, I look at the explicit naming wordplays that occur before Exodus 3. And actually, there's about 50, probably more than we realize, 50 wordplays where a person is explicitly saying, I have named this child or this place such, and for this reason or saying this, and there's a connection between a proper name and some sort of wordplay complement. Um, and so that's how I start to approach the divine name. How do we understand this dialogue between Moses and the Lord? It's in a form. And attending to that form is important. Attending to the proper name and then its wordplay, its phonetic complement. So the sort of um, what I should say is I'll tip my hand here. And one of my biggest assertions in the work is that I translate Exodus 3.14 as I will be whoever I will be. And I think most people will take a lot of convincing for that. So I think it's worth laboring the point. Why do I, how do I get to that point? 
The first is looking at this form, this explicit naming wordplay. The second point is that the important verb in Exodus 3.14 is in the yiktol or imperfect um, tense aspect, whatever we call it. It's in the yiktol. And that by default makes it um, almost always a present or future tense translation. But coupled with that is when we're dealing specifically with the being verb, haya, there is no, I found no evidence of ehye or yehye or the yiktol of this verb coming across as a present tense translation in the entire Hebrew Bible. It's always future or modal. I would be, I could be, I will be, you will be, he will be, he was, something not present tense. And that's the way Semitic languages are. Even speaking Arabic today, I can tell you that it still applies. Um, the next point, why do I say I will be whoever I will be? That seems a bit strained for the word asher, but um, it's part of construction where you have a noun, a verb repeated with asher, ehye, asher, ehye. It's called idem per idem, and it displays indefiniteness or indeterminacy. Um, and then number, sort of the fifth reason is the future tense translation fits very well, you know, grammatically and with ehye and all these things. But it also fits with the narrative of Exodus, where what's happening at the burning bush is anticipatory. It's not, as someone once told me, the holy of holies of God's revelation. It's simply... Um, anticipatory. You could almost give it a, a uh, very loose translation and say, wait and see, Moses. What is my name? Wait and see. You, you will, the, the future will reveal that, but I'm not saying much right now. Um, so really a big decision for any reader of my dissertation is, will you accept or be convinced by this translation of Exodus 3.14, I will be whoever I will be? If you do, then I think the rest of the argument falls in place. But I admit that it puts me in a minority uh, of scholars and it takes some convincing. But that's how I begin to approach the divine name. Austin, would you give us a taste of some of your approach and findings by rehearsing your chapter on Exodus 6, 2 through 8? Yes, the fourth chapter covers that um, block of text. Um, the flashpoint tends to be in Exodus 2 and 3, where the Lord says, I made myself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. But as for my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not become known to them. And I do answer that, but again, by looking more broadly at what Exodus is doing with the name. Um, and when you study the Lord's sort of uh, expression or speech to Moses there in those verses, there's a new sort of combination or collocation of the verb yada, to know, and the, the divine name, the Tetragrammaton. It's never been put together before in the biblical narrative, interestingly. And it's being introduced here, even if it's negative. By my name, the Lord, I did not become known to them. But then within that um, speech, there is a phrase that becomes repeated a lot in Exodus, and that is the phrase, so that you will know that I am the Lord. Um, that becomes significant because throughout the plagues narrative, there is this phrase, 
you will know that I am the Lord. Egypt will know that I am the Lord. Israel will know that I am the Lord. The earth will know, or you will know that the earth is the Lord's. Um, I have raised you up in order to proclaim my name. Um, I would say this is the first real uh, opening up of the meaning of the divine name. And it's an association. It's not etymological. It's not grammatical. It's not connecting this name to Haya. But it's saying the being, the God that performed these amazing acts, separated his people, that judged the gods of Egypt, has a name, and it is Yahweh. It's not Baal, and it's not Amun-Ra, and it's not Osiris, it's not anything else. So God is at pains to make an ascription to his name. And I, sorry, I forgot this point. Uh, I made a mistake earlier. It's actually Pharaoh that starts this whole process. When Pharaoh says in Exodus 5, who is the Lord that I should release, you know, the sons of Israel, I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So he, as I put it, sort of drops the gauntlet and says, I don't know him, perhaps meaning I don't recognize him. Who is he? And so God replies, well, in ages past, I was did not become known to them by this name. But the implication is now, now is the time when we open the doors to making this name known. And it's hard to argue against these this phrase occurring i think it's after every single plague or before every single plague as well as at the the red sea two times that all these actions are revealing the identity of this god through his actions you demonstrate that the proclamation of the divine name in exodus 34 presents the climax of the lord's revelation would you review that point for us i will this is i believe the fifth chapter um so this combination, both of words, but of an idea that knowing the Lord, this emphasis kind of fades away as the narrative goes on and the people reach Sinai. And then there's laws, which we don't expect the laws to do that. But the narrative picks it up again um, at the golden calf incident when the people sin and Moses makes three intercession trips up to Sinai on behalf of the people. And on the third time, we get this intimate conversation about the last, I don't know, nine verses of chapter 33 in Exodus. And Moses says something very interesting. He says, Lord, show me your ways that I may know you, that I may know you. I, I see in this an indication that the knowledge of the name or the person that came through the plagues was not enough. It was not enough. Moses himself, Moses himself said, I need revelation. Show me your glory. Show me. Like I'm, I basically, he says of God at this point in the story, I don't have any understanding of you to know if you'll even continue with the people. You may just wipe them out. And I would, that would fit with what I know of you. So show me your glory. Show me your ways that I may know you. The Lord responds by saying, first, I'll cause all my goodness to pass over. But then he switches to his name. It's like he moves on to the emphasis of the name. And he has this collocation or this, what we called earlier, Edom per Edom construction in this phrase and says, I will be gracious to whomever I will be gracious and have compassion on whomever I have compassion. I'm maybe loosely translating, but it has this asher and a repeated verb. 
And I see that as significant. It's already filling in, I will be whoever I will be. In Exodus 3, it's very open-ended. It uses a being verb. It's essentially God saying, wait for the future to reveal the meaning of my name. But we're getting a hint when he ties compassion and mercy to the name, fills in the being verb with compassion and mercy. And sure enough, the actual proclamation of the name is in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And how does it begin? The name is repeated twice. And that's significant. It's the only time the Tetragrammaton appears twice with that function of focusing on the character. It's also represented in third person. It's not the Lord, the Lord, I am such and such, like in Exodus 20. It's the Lord, the Lord, a God who is, or a God compassionate, a compassionate God. And it seems to me that the, God is giving his people a formula or a something that is meant to be cherished and repeated. Um, and it begins with a God who is compassionate and gracious, these two verbs that are hinted at earlier. So I see a gradual specification from being, I will be whoever I will be, to I will have compassion, have mercy, and then the beautiful, you know, list of God's character. It really reads like a doctrinal statement. We don't have a lot of that in the Old Testament that even comes close to a, the genre of a doctrinal statement, but this one does. If that is not enough to convince us that these verses are climactic or give, in the Bible's terms, a definition of the name, then we have other things. Um, but at first, let me go back and say, I don't believe the definition of the name Tetragrammaton is etymological at all. I don't think it really is helpful or the, the authors didn't play upon the fact that it seems related to a being verb and it might be parsed specifically like Hifil, third person. I just don't think that's Old Testament theology. I don't think that works, but it does unfold through the biblical story itself. So that's the definition of the name. And if that's still not convincing, the next chapter in the dissertation talks about the echoes or allusions to Exodus 34 in the rest of the Hebrew Bible. And there's a lot. And I tried to be rigorous in defining what they were, but we have a few cases where it's more or less quoted, like in Numbers 14, Moses is dealing again with a sinful people and uh, the Lord is upset. And he says, but remember, essentially remember what you've said. Don't let the nations mock you. You are this way. And beyond that, there's many allusions and there's a few quotations or they change it or they modify it. It's common in the prophets to add the phrase that he, um, he, uh, yeah, I'm using King James English here. This is terrible. I'm thinking of the Arabic, but like, he repents over the, over evil, or he is, expresses remorse, you know, Naham. Um, forgive me for not saying that very clearly, but it's played with, it's echoed, it's used in various genres at various time periods. And more than anything, that convinces me that this is the definition of the name. Maybe we're used to thinking of the word definition in terms of etymology, but that's not how the Bible defines the name. It's through the unfolding of the name over time. And I don't really see any echoes or allusions to I will be whoever I will be or he causes to be in the Hebrew Bible. 
yes, the Bible stresses God's presence with people, but it doesn't, it isn't echoed, isn't robust in the same way it would be with this definition. So Austin, what else are you working on these days? This is, this is a kind of question because it's just uh, asking me, yeah, what's going on? I was kind of burned out on research and writing for a few years. Just you, anyone who's written a dissertation knows it can be hard to get back up and keep going. And I was busy transitioning to Jordan. But finally, maybe a year, year and a half ago, God put on my heart to uh, sort of consider my context here in the Middle East through biblical lenses. Um, and it starts with, I'll maybe start with the, the local matter, the Middle Eastern matter, and just I'm realizing how broad it expands as a, as a Bible teacher and a Bible student. Um, yeah, how should believers in Jesus Christ, how should Christians approach the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? I was studying this long before the Gaza War started, you know, on October 7th, um, because there's always, it's always in the air here. There's always for or against, and there's always questions. So that's sort of the end goal is how can I myself and encourage others think about this uh, Christian worldview, Christian imagination, scripture. But I'm realizing just how endless this is because a lot of it deals with uh, hermeneutics, the Testament priority. Do we keep the Old Testament literally interpreted and sort of bring it straight over to the present or the future? Is the, is the Old Testament Christified or sort of interpreted through the lens of the gospel? Um, how did the apostles interpret the Old Testament? How determinative is that for us? And what are the implications of all of this for like the relationship of the church to Israel, eschatology? Um, it is way over my head. So I'm actually grateful that I haven't sort of signed up and like some sort of contract with a publisher because it gives me leisure to approach it gently and slowly. Um, and my goal is not to create camps or sharpen the lines between camps. I would really, really like to point out what's common between all sides, even the sides we don't like, or the people who hold views we don't like, um, unite us. I think it's helpful to identify sort of extreme positions that we should avoid. There are ways people go on either side of the conflict as Christians that are extreme. And it's my heart that this conflict does not spill over into the church. I mean, it's heartbreaking that American evangelicals, thousands of miles from the Holy Land, are separating and are strident and are upset. Um, I don't want that conflict to come into the church. I want it to pull us to the heart of the gospel and reconciliation as much as possible. Austin, thank you for joining us. It's been a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.